I've basically never had a good night's sleep. I am always tired. And it, it's been like that since I was a little kid. Actually, in one particularly memorable episode, uh, I think I slept through the ACT, <laughs> uh, the test that you're supposed to take to try to get into college. I fell asleep during it and woke up at the end. Um, I tend to thrash around a lot in my sleep. I have night sweats. Uh, I recently accidentally broke a filling because I was grinding my teeth so hard. Sleep is a, um, it's, it's always been a problem for me. And, I, and it is for a lot of my friends too. That's Sarah Luderman talking. When she was in her early 20s, Luderman received an autism diagnosis, but many of the signs had been there for years before. Most of all, her difficulty sleeping. As she would learn, she was far from alone. You're listening to Spectrum Stories, the podcast from Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. I'm Jacob Brogan. Somewhere between 40 and 80% of people with autism have trouble with sleep, compared to about 20% in the typical population. It's an issue that's been part of the literature of autism for decades, but in more recent years, some researchers have begun to confront the co-occurrence of autism and disturbed sleep more directly. Much of this work is detailed in a special report on sleep and autism, now available on Spectrum. As Claudia Wallace writes in a story in that report, the new wave of research is taking a two-pronged approach. First, clinicians and scientists are trying to understand why these challenges are so common. Simultaneously, Many of those same researchers are developing strategies to help individuals with autism sleep a little better. That's the good news. Just as autism varies from one individual to the next, sleep disturbances take on different forms in different individuals. Still, as Jonathan Lipton, a neurologist and sleep researcher at the Boston Children's Hospital, explains, we can identify a few common patterns. The most common things are uh, fragmented sleep or disrupted sleep during the night. So uh, some kind of inability or difficulty with sustaining sleep through the night. That, that's, that's probably the biggest problem. That's the biggest complaint. Trouble settling at night is also a big problem for many patients, so difficulty with actually initiating sleep. But I think the biggest problem is really fragmentation of sleep. And there have been reports of specific circadian dysfunction also, so actually problems with the timing of sleep, which may actually you know, these things are all interwoven, so it's a little hard to know exactly what the chicken and egg is there, specifically on a clinical level. Many children with autism manifest different challenges as they go through their early development. That was true for Jackson Tyler, who's now seven years old. As his parents, Maurice and Dwartha, tell it, he had trouble sleeping well before he received a formal autism diagnosis at six. Kind of from birth, Jackson has uh, been, of, of our three kids, he's been the one that has had the most difficulty sleeping soundly throughout the night. Uh, at certain points, it was falling asleep. And in advance of us uh, participating in the study, it was more of that ladder where he was having a, a good bit of difficulty getting to sleep at night. The study that Maurice refers to there is a project run by Beth Mallow, a professor of neurology at Vanderbilt University. Mallow had been a sleep specialist for years but she got interested in the connection to autism when her oldest child received an autism diagnosis at three. I spoke with some of my colleagues, and they said, you know, there's so many unmet needs for sleep 
in the field of autism. Um, so many kids with autism just don't sleep well, and it affects their lives and their families. And so I realized there was a lot of work to be done, and, and I thought, you know, this is something maybe I can contribute to. After some initial successes with improving sleep in controlled environments, Mallow and her collaborators set out to bring the methods they had tested into community settings. They were hoping that they could help train parents and families in the basics of behavioral sleep education. The Tylers learned about that project from their own family pediatrician. Soon, they were meeting with a therapist to talk about steps they could take, things they could do to help Jackson take control of his own time. Dwartha Tyler says that even small changes started to make a big difference. I think sitting there and talking with what we were already doing and getting confirmation that some of what we were doing, you know, were good things in regards to helping him to get a good night's sleep, but just tweaking some things like moving, you know, moving his bedtime from 7.30 to 8, you know, making sure that he was doing something calming before he went to bed, you know, uh, turning down the light before bedtime so that he would get in a, a calm space and know that, okay, it's, it's, it's time to start slowing down. It's getting closer to bedtime. Establishing a clearer routine has proven important for others as well. Christopher Colwell, a sleep researcher at the University of California, Los Angeles, agrees. I'm a strong advocate of what I would refer to in my public speaking as a strategy of habits. You know, of having a regular routine, especially for people that are suffering from trouble sleeping. I mean, this is a you know, well-established strategy, right, of having a regular schedule, things that you do that are relaxing before bed, you know, to, to sort of help get the, the body into the state where then, you know, you, you can go to sleep. Um, and, it's, and a regular schedule is good for all of us. Sarah Luderman talks about her own routine in terms of sleep hygiene. I asked her what she meant by that. Going to bed at almost exactly the same time every night and waking up at almost exactly the time, same time every day. Whether I fall asleep or not, I get into bed at 10.30, and whether I'm feeling rested or not, I get up at like 7.30 or 8. Obviously, sometimes that has to vary, but it's I found the best thing in terms of actually sleeping. <laughs> Researchers think that there are other methods as well, and we'll talk about some of them in a minute. But there's another issue here, which is that we still don't really understand why autism so often goes hand-in-hand with difficulty sleeping. That's partly because we don't really understand sleep itself. As Lipton puts it, when we sleep, ideally we pass through cycles of REM, rapid eye movement, and non-REM sleep that regulate communication between brain cells, learning, and a host of other biologically important phenomena. But we're still struggling to understand what's going on and how sleep works. Autism only complicates those issues. And I think it's tough because because sleep is a very I mean I mean not not to speak in platitudes but it's it's it's, it's enormously complex right it's it's almost like asking you know what happens during wake. Central to that complexity is the role of the circadian clock. That's the internal biological mechanism that regulates the body's sleep-wake cycles. Previous research has indicated that people with autism are more likely than other people to have mutations in the genes that control the circadian clock. What we found is that, at least on the, at the level of the circadian clock, the connections between the pathways responsible for the disease and the pathways uh, regulating the, the timing system are, are intimate. They're not, they're not associative. 
meaning that there are direct biochemical connections um, between the pathways regulating certain neurodevelopmental disorders and, and the timing system. Beth Mallow suggests that there are at least three reasons why we might see this link between autism and sleeplessness. You know, I think you could divide it simplistically into, I like to say, um, you know, biological, um, medical, and behavioral. So the biological would be, for example, over-arousal in the brain or some of the neurochemicals might, you know, be altered, like melatonin might be affected. You know, those are those are kinds the kinds of conditions or, or symptoms that might be going on. And then the second cause, I think, is the medical. So this is kids with autism may have more seizures or more GI problems. Um, they may be on medications for associated conditions like ADHD. Um, so all of that could make sleep worse. Because, you know, like, for example, the stimulants for ADHD can contribute to poor sleep. And then I think the third category that's oftentimes neglected is is kind of the behavioral category. You know, and when I say behavioral, I don't mean the kid isn't behaving well. I mean things like um, kids with autism absolutely love electronics and computers, right? And the idea that we all know that when we're on our phones or our devices, it can interfere with sleep from the bright light and the stimulating content. So part of the sleep problem in autism may be as simple as kids are just not getting, you know, um, they're getting exposed to bright light at night. They're not getting the regular exercise they need to sleep better at night. You know, all those what we consider to be behavioral things. Given all those factors, you might worry that researchers would be tempted to just throw up their hands in frustration. If there's no single cause for sleeplessness, can we ever really understand what's going on here? Maybe not. But Mallow, at least, is undeterred. If anything, that complexity excites her. Well, it it actually makes it more interesting in a way, you know, because it's kind of like, I describe it, it's almost like peeling away at an onion. You know, there's multiple layers um, that are going on, and it does make it harder in that it's not one simple thing. It's usually many different things that are affecting any given child. So, you know, you have to kind of really take a holistic approach and look at all of the different possible factors. As researchers work to make sense of causation, some are considering the possibility that autism may disrupt our brain's circadian clocks. Lipton says that possibility could help us develop new and better therapies for those with sleep problems. It also might help us revolutionize the ways we treat autism. One of the things that gets disrupted is the clock. And so the the logical hypothesis is that we could potentially use the clock as a way of going back and fixing aspects of the disease. Initially, I went into it thinking, oh, we're just trying to understand how they're connected. But by finding that they are connected, now we can sort of explore hypotheses of actually using the clock to mitigate the disorder. Now, is that going to work? I don't know yet. But I think that's the tantalizing idea, that maybe by understanding these connections between major disruptions like the clock or or sleep, we can actually then try and 
try and use these specific phenotypes and specific connections to identify ways of you know, mitigating the underlying disorder, at least aspects of it. One especially promising possibility for mitigating sleep problems in people with autism comes in the form of melatonin supplements, though Mallow stresses both that we need more trials and that they're not going to be the right choice for everyone. Luderman, for one, has tried them in the past and found that they weren't quite right for her, though she's willing to give them another shot. I've tried melatonin, I've tried valerian, I've tried some pharmaceutical stuff like Ambien, um, I've tried trazodone, like I just have like a whole list of both alternative and more conventional therapies to, to fall asleep and it's, I really haven't had very much success. Um, I found melatonin tends to make me feel pretty hungover, actually, so I, I haven't taken it in quite some time. Where she's concerned, it's probably better to go with melatonin than some of the other options. Well, I did fall asleep when I started taking the Ambien. The, the problem with that was that I started doing things while I was asleep that I was not conscious of doing, um, which I, I guess is a side effect that's been documented in neurotypical people, but... Uh, I woke up one morning and found I had made an email address for my dead dog, and that was the last time I I took Ambien. Another promising angle of investigation comes in the form of wearable devices that would help track sleep throughout the night, giving us a better picture of how people are actually doing. Researchers sometimes refer to that kind of information as actigraphy data. It played an important role in the Vanderbilt study, in which participants wore watches that measured their levels of rest. That data provided them with information that helped determine whether and how their suggested interventions were working. Mallow thinks it could be even more important in the future, since it might allow them to identify problems with greater precision. I'm not sure the field is ready there yet because some of these devices like the Fitbits aren't validated, but down the road, being able to collect data from people's phones or Apple Watches or whatever that we can really get a handle in large data sets on how individuals with autism are sleeping. Jackson Tyler, for one, loved using his actigraphy watch during the study. He wore it at night to record how well he was sleeping, but it ended up serving a less scientific, if still important, purpose for him. You know, I think one of the things that was interesting for me that also came out of it was Jackson's affinity for the watch that was part of the sleep study. His uh, acuteness to time was something new that developed out of that as well. And, and that's carried over. He, I mean, he doesn't have to watch anymore, but he's very, very attuned to what time it is. And, it, and he, again, continues to kind of drive the schedule himself around. It's, you know, this time, so I need to be doing this particular activity. It's this time, so I need to move on to the next activity. As Jackson's experiences suggest, participating in sleep research and in the therapies that emerge from it can help individuals with autism claim a degree of control over both their nights and their days. That's good for everyone involved. When we treat sleep problems, we make such a difference not just for sleep and for overall health, but for the whole child. So the child now, during the day, is if they're less irritable or, you know, they have fewer tantrums, they're going to just function so much better and the parents are going to function better. I think he's been more confident since starting the program because 
as my husband said, I think he started to feel like a, a big kid. Like I'm responsible for, you know, what I do from one moment to the next. So he felt like he was taking responsibility because he was paying attention to the time of, oh, it's time to do this. Oh, now I'm supposed to be doing something calm. Now I'm supposed to be reading. Now it's time for me to go to bed. And so I think he took a lot of ownership in regards to if I want to get good sleep, these are some of the things I'm going to have to do. And so once he was introduced to the program, he took it and he ran with it. I think they all benefited in some way from it. This has been an episode of Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. To read more on autism and sleep, check out Spectrum's special report on sleep and autism, available at spectrumnews.org. Audio for this episode was edited by Mickey Capper. I'm Jacob Brogan.